Good morning. Follow along with me as we read from God's word, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among the people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and his hand was glowing cold that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. (laughs) And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears. Blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Tim. It's good to be with you all again. Um, I do consulting work with churches in different ways, and I have been coming up on average once a month-ish uh, here to be with you guys at Sound City for, it's been almost a year and a half. I was counting it up. It's been kind of wild. Usually I've been helping out with music, uh, but now I'm, I'm helping out uh, to fill in some uh, with the preaching. And so it's just great to be with you guys all again. It's like my, my home away from home is what it feels like. I lived in Seattle for 12 years, but I'm, I'm in Portland now, uh, which is where I'm from. Grew up in Portland, was here for 12 years, and went back to Portland about... 12 years, another 12 years ago. The years are adding up. Uh, Let's just pray before we uh, start dating myself. Um, (laughs) Father, uh, we just thank you for your word. And as we come to this passage that is, is pretty well known, just ask that you would help us to see this passage how you see it, how you want us to hear it. Ask that you would fill us all, myself included, with your Holy Spirit and help us to understand more deeply Uh, what you mean through your word, and how it points us to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to uh, the Bible today, uh, I want you to remember an important idea that's going to come into play a lot in what we talk about. Uh, And that is this, that that context has a huge effect and, and influence on the meaning of a particular passage. Here's what I mean by context. It's kind of the, 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 the backstory, uh, uh, the understanding kind of a, of the background about a passage. And, and as an example of that, I'll, I'll out myself and, and my nerddom. Um, you know, think about Lord of the Rings for a second. I love the Lord of the Rings. I read it many times, watched the films even more times. I, I reread it every few years and I just started it again. And, and you know, if, if Tolkien started off uh, that story just right into the saga of the hobbits, it would raise a lot of questions. And so both the, the film as well as the book, it, it starts off 
with an opening kind of introduction called concerning hobbits, right? Where it says like, this is why they have furry feet and this is where they come from and this is what they're like. And without that backstory and without some of that history, it wouldn't really make sense all that comes afterwards. It's the same thing with the Bible and particularly it's the background and the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, it, it, that, that really is the foundation for understanding everything in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. And a lot of the Bible assumes that you already understand that. And if you don't understand it, you don't have near as much of an understanding of, of what's actually going on in a particular place in a particular time in the Scripture. You always have to ask, what would this have meant to the first people who heard it before we can rightly understand what it means for us here and, and now. And so I'm going to start off with a little history lesson. And if you're not into that, I'm sorry, you're welcome. Um, uh, but but that, I feel like that's where we have to start to really understand where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 6. And so I'm going to break down as quickly and concisely as possible the story of the entire history of the nation of Israel. Um, Israel starts with a family. It's, uh, God's word came to this guy in ancient Mesopotamia named Abram. And he makes this promise to him that even though he's 75 years old and childless, his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. He will make him into a nation through whom all people will be blessed. Abraham eventually has a kid named Isaac, and Isaac has a kid named Jacob, and Jacob means deceiver, and he lived up to that, and then he wrestles with God, and he gets a new name, uh, Israel, which means struggles with God. That's one of the keys to understanding the whole nation of Israel, is, is names in Hebrew culture have meaning, and the meaning of the word Israel means struggles with God, and they definitely live up to it. They end up settling in Egypt Uh, A while passes, the family kind of grows to be a nation. Egypt ends up flipping on them and makes them slaves. They're in slavery for 500 years. God delivers them through Moses. He makes a covenant with them, sets up kind of the terms of their relationship, uh, gives them his law to guide them. Uh, And eventually they settle in this promised land and they're ruled by judges that kind of settle disputes. But it doesn't go well. It's not going well for them. The time of the judges is a tough time. It's a, it's a dark time in the history of Israel. And eventually, they start looking around at all the other nations around them, and they come up with an idea. What the key is that will make everything better for Israel is they need a king. Because they look around and they're like, you know, we're not like the rest of the big boy nations. We're feeling kind of junior varsity and we want to go pro. Uh, and, and in order to go pro, to be a real legit nation, we need a king. God sees this as a betrayal because God says to them, I am your king. He sees it as them turning from him, but he gives, it, he gives them their wish. In, in essence, to say like, all right, here. You can have a king. You'll see what it's like to be ruled by a king. And thus, Israel goes from kind of being this this nomadic people to becoming a kingdom. They get their first king, a guy named Saul. He starts off well. It doesn't go well. He's eventually killed in battle. 
Uh, then they get David, the best king that they ever had. But the best king that they ever had was still uh, one who horribly abused his power, was a murderer and an adulterer. Uh, he has a son named Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live until Jesus. And uh, in all of his wisdom, he walks away from God, but then he comes back at the tail end of his life. He, he builds the temple. He got some serious things done. But those three kings is kind of the best that Israel ever had. It, it, the period lasts about 100 years And right after that, Solomon's sons divide the kingdom. And there's 12 tribes of Israel. 11 of the 12 tribes turn away from God and they form the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, And the one tribe that remains true to God is the tribe of Judah, which becomes its own kind of nation to the south. And they stay faithful for a bit longer. And these are the glory days of Israel. 100 years of a very mixed bag, and ever since, even to this day, Israel is trying to get back to those glory days. I call the, uh, the, 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 this, this spirit, um, it sounds uh, maybe familiar to something uh, of a similar spirit we have today, they want to make Israel great again. Uh, the, 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 uh, you could call it MIGA, if you will. Enter the prophet Isaiah. About 150 years into this divided kingdom, Israel is continuing in rebellion against God. Judah has now joined them in rebellion against God. Both kingdoms are under threat from Assyria. And I have this map to kind of give you a bit of a a sense of scale, if we could flip that up there. And you can see um, over here uh, uh, on, on, let's see, my right, your left, you can see the tiny little kingdoms of of, of Israel and Judah. Then you see Assyria, all that green. It was the largest empire that the world had ever known at that point. They were highly organized. They were extremely brutal. They conquered everyone. They deported their citizens and resettled them, the ones who they didn't kill in horrible ways, uh, into, into uh, kind of their uh, lands. And, and everyone who sees Assyria coming is terrified. And you can see how small Israel and Judah are in comparison. God's people are crying out under this threat. Not only are they kind of going a bit of amiga, um, they're, they're wanting to make Israel better and get back to glory days, but they're under serious threat. They're crying out to God. They're looking for any source of hope. And in the midst of all this, that's the backdrop for how God's word begins to come to Isaiah. But it's not an encouraging word. And you've probably already heard this. I believe this is the third message in this series. You've already heard it in some of the first few chapters. It just like jumps right into God's judgment and condemnation of both Israel and Judah. And it just goes back and forth for most of the whole book. God preaching against and and predicting the destruction of both Israel and Judah because they have turned away from him. Isaiah does point to a hope, but it's kind of a farther off hope. And it's not the hope they want because God's plan from the beginning was never one nation. It was one man uh, who would bring hope that could be available to all people, not just one chosen nation. And so that brings us to a really well-known passage that you just heard read from Isaiah 6. We're going to look at this passage. We're going to consider what it meant for the people who first heard it. Then we're going to consider how it, how it connects to Jesus uh, and then how we should respond. Isaiah 6 is, is kind of Isaiah's in like comic book or movie terms. It's like uh, Isaiah's origin story. It's like the backstory of, of how he got to be where he was. And it starts with a vision and then this kind of back and forth conversation between Isaiah and God. 
So in verse one, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, that kind of places this, Uzziah was one of the, the last good kings of Israel, and it sets this around 740 BC, about 740 years before the birth of Jesus. And God comes to Isaiah in this powerful vision. He reveals himself on a sovereign throne in comparison to this, this one of the last good kings of Israel that had died. Uh, he reveals himself as the ultimate king above all kings, high and lifted up in power, more powerful than any earthly king, robed in glory. He's in a temple, which symbolizes where heaven meets earth, where God meets humanity. And he's surrounded by heavenly creatures called seraphim that are, that are worshiping him, worshiping him in his holiness and his glory, just like we just did through some of the old hymns and, and modern songs that we already sang today and, and we will sing more um, in, in just a few minutes. And, and the seraphim sing this song of worship that I would have loved to hear because it says it, it causes the thresholds and the foundations of the temple to shake. So if ever the low end is kind of a little too high here in the room when you're hearing the music or gets a little loud, just know that it's biblical, right? Uh, it's a foretaste of what we will eventually experience in these, these heavenly songs that, that, that shake the very foundation of the building. It sounds pretty sweet to me. Um, the whole place is also filled with smoke, it says, uh, which, which kind of makes it hard to see even what's going on. It's powerful, it's intense, it's overwhelming. And Isaiah kind of has a natural response to seeing this vision. He says, woe is me. He says, I am lost. And this word for lost is translated elsewhere in, in Hebrew as, as destroyed, it's also translated sometimes as silence, this metaphorical silence that happens at the end of a battle when everyone is defeated. He sees God in his holiness and glory, and he probably has God's word to Moses in mind from Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses and gives him the Ten Commandments. He says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So Isaiah's like, don't, I'm seeing God, I think I'm gonna die, right? That's like, like death, if you're seeing God, death is near. And this is a common response to almost every time God reveals himself. It, over and over again, even if it's an angel, it says that the person fell over like they were dead or, or they just like faint or pass out. Like it's so overwhelming. It's hard to even imagine, but he doesn't die. And so he confesses his sin and his unworthiness. He says he's a man of, of unclean lips. And this, this term unclean is actually a very technical term uh, for their culture and the way that God revealed himself to Israel and how they were to worship him. He revealed himself through uh, a, a series of laws. And when you broke the law, you became unclean before God. And then there were sacrifices and offerings that were prescribed to offer to make you clean and, and right again. You guys just studied this for a long time. For those who, who were around the uh, Sound City in this last year, when you went through the, the, the book of Leviticus, that's all about uh, these sacrifices that are offered for, for everything in glorious detail, as you probably remember. <laughs> uh, it was a bold move uh, to go through Leviticus. I haven't ever seen a church actually go. I've, the most I've seen is people to cherry pick here and there, like a couple passages, because it's a lot to take. So good job. Um, uh, so he's, he's deeply convicted 
uh, of his uncleanness, but, but specifically his unclean lips. And in the Bible throughout, and particularly Hebrew culture, uh, they, they saw your lips and the mouth, the overflow of the mouth is what comes from the heart, is the, is the idea, philosophically. So, so whatever comes out of your mouth reveals the state of your heart. And he says, he, he, he's confessing, God, I am a man of unclean lips. My heart is, is, is far from you. And I live amongst people who are in the same condition. God, you are so holy and glorious. I can't believe you're showing yourself to me and I'm still alive. All entitlement falls away from Isaiah. You know, I think there can be kind of two types of folks um, as they uh, think about God. One, it feels so consumed with their unworthiness that they can't imagine how he could ever reveal them. And, and the other end of the spectrum is like so completely assured of his forgiveness and grace that you can't imagine ever feeling unworthy, right? Um, and, and, and both of those are understandable. They're just kind of two different points of view. And, and to each point of view, you kind of need the opposite message. Those who can't imagine not receiving grace might need to, to sit and, and, and experience God's holiness. And those who are so consumed with God's holiness that God could not even relate to them, they need to understand more of his grace. Well, Isaiah's on that, that end of the spectrum. He's like, I can't even believe you would reveal yourself to me. He's undone by this vision, assuming God can have nothing to do with him. But the good news is that instead of condemnation, instead of death, he receives God's grace. One of these creatures brings a, a coal from an altar, and the altar was where sacrifices were made to make you right with God, and that's what it does for him. He takes a coal, he touches it to his unclean lips, and, he, and the creature says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. To atone is to appease, to, to be made right, to have your sin covered. It's, this is the definition of what grace is. Isaiah is deeply aware of his uncleanness, his unworthiness. He's expecting condemnation. He's deserving it. Yet God forgives and gives grace instead, making things right between them. And this grace is completely the work of God. Isaiah did nothing to deserve it. All he did was simply confess that he wasn't worthy and receive that grace as it was given to him. And the clear implication is, if only Israel would have the same response. If only all the rest of God's people would simply confess their sin and acknowledge their uncleanness, God would eagerly forgive and restore relationship but we don't, and that's where it goes. And this leads to Isaiah's commission. God now finally speaks. Before, it's just been the seraphim. And he's listening, he's looking, uh, sorry, for, for a messenger. He says, who will, who will speak for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, this is one of the best-known lines of, of Isaiah, here I am, send me. And notice the order. God reveals himself, he feels condemnation, he confesses his sin, he receives forgiveness, God extends an invitation to do something on his behalf, and Isaiah responds. He's only able to respond because he's been forgiven first. God's grace precedes the work. We don't work to please God, 
If he gives us things to do, they're an expression of grace, done out of grace, not to receive grace. We don't work our way into salvation or into more of a purpose or a sense of calling. And now with cleansed lips, Isaiah can speak God's words. It's not a coincidence that this is all happening around his mouth because God wants him to, to speak on his behalf. That's what a prophet does. They speak on God's behalf. And so God gives him a message and a mission. And this is where things turn. All of this so far is like really glorious and pretty encouraging and it takes a very dark turn. This is the message. It's a, it's a weird message. This is, he, says, he says, go and say to this people, my people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. This, that's, a, that's a weird sermon, huh? He's saying, he's saying okay, people, keep on hearing. And, and the, the connotation is like, receive auditory information, but do not comprehend what it means receive visual information, see things that God is doing, but do not comprehend what it actually means and the one who, who brings these things. And God explains further uh, the mission and what he wants this message to produce. He says, make the hearts of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. God in his sovereignty already knows the outcome of Isaiah's ministry. To the point where the mission and the message are given to produce this outcome. Blind eyes, deaf ears, and hard hearts. But even this is a mercy from God. It's another chance for those who, who do actually have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are still open to God. And you see this, you'll see this as you continue to study Isaiah, like... There's, there's this faithful small group that kind of starts to gather around Isaiah and actually listen to this message and turn to God just like Isaiah is turning to God. But for the most part, unfortunately, all of this comes true. It's tough stuff. And Isaiah responds instantly. He says, he says man, this is brutal. How long, O Lord? This is a repeating lament of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, when tough things happen. 62 times in the scriptures, God's people cry out to God, how long, O Lord, how long? A lot of them are in the Psalms. How long is, is, does he have to proclaim this message? That's what Isaiah is asking. He's like, how long am I going to have to give this brutal message? How long will the hearts of God's people be this hard? And God's answer is even tougher. Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He's predicting the coming exile of God's people, which is exactly what's going to happen. He says in verse 13, although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. He says there'll be less than a tenth of God's people left. And even then, he says, like a terebinth or an oak, these are trees, where a stump remains when it felled, uh, when it's felled. He, he, he says, he says uh, it, it'll be like, like when you log off a forest and you cut down all the trees till all the stumps are left, but then the loggers come back through and burn the stumps out. That's what it's going to be like after this judgment. Man, it's a tough word. 
Though a tenth remained, it will be burned again. God's message and mission for Isaiah, it's, it's kind of the final chance. The final chance, the final word for God's people. Their hearts are already hard, and, and God sends Isaiah with this tough message of judgment and, destruct, and, and, and destruction. And he tells him to keep preaching it until it all comes true, and almost all of Israel is gone. It's not what anyone was hoping for. When they're looking at the threat of Assyria coming, and God will say, and you'll hear it in other passages in Isaiah, it's one of the toughest things to reconcile. I don't, it doesn't sit right with me either. Um, but nonetheless, God says repeatedly in Isaiah and other, elsewhere in the prophets, he says, I'm sending Assyria. They don't worship me. They don't want anything to do with me. But they're my instrument of judgment for you, which is, we won't talk a lot about that. That's not in this passage, but it's a tough word. So is there any hope? Is there any hope left in the midst of this? This is, this is pretty bleak, right? Well, the very final little phrase of this passage is where the hope is. There is hope. He says, the holy seed is its stump. And this is where you've got to kind of put your thinking cap on and understand metaphors. And, and even uh, some translations of the Scriptures have a little text note that tells you that this word for seed is often also translated as offspring or descendants. And if you've got your Bible thinking cap on, you can see where this is going. He's saying, he's saying, look, less than a tenth will remain, but God will preserve for himself a people. A small remnant, it won't even be 10%, but a remnant of those faithful to him will remain. It will survive all of this coming tough stuff. Those who confess their sin and experience the grace of God, there will, there will be a faithful remnant. And ultimately, it points to the greatest offspring, the greatest descendant of Israel, which is Jesus. And that was always the hope. God's, God's hope for Israel was never just to be a nation on its own. It was what that nation would produce. Jesus, a Savior for all people. We'll get there in a minute, but it begs the question, historically, well, what happened next? What happened next after you know, Isaiah's commissioning and such. Well, about 20 years after Isaiah 6, Assyria does what we, what we know. They, they invade Israel, the, the northern kingdom, and they haul off all the people to exile and resettle them throughout the greater Assyrian empire. About 50 years after Isaiah's call, according to tradition, uh, Isaiah is killed in a pretty brutal way. And he's not killed by foreign armies. He's killed by the then king of Judah. Judah has also turned away from God. And this pretty brutal king called Manasseh, according to, to um, Jewish tradition, kills Isaiah. And then Assyria gets too arrogant and Babylon rises up and takes over. And then Babylon comes and crushes Judah. They destroy the temple. They lay waste to Jerusalem. And they exile all the people and resettle them also. This was the way Assyria kind of did things. They, they would take people, whoever survived the battle, they would resettle them throughout the nation uh, so that they couldn't rise up as one anymore. Babylon eventually gives way to Persia. Persia lets Israel go back home and, and start to rebuild a temple and rebuild their city. And immediately, 
They put their hope right back in a nation to make Israel great again. Persia gives way to Greece. Greece gives way to Rome. Most of Israel continues to not follow God. They continue to hope in national identity and a return to power, but there's always a faithful remnant just like God promised until that ultimate remnant is revealed, and his name is Jesus. And just as Isaiah was commissioned by God in a vision, Jesus is commissioned by his heavenly Father at his baptism. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's affirmed uh, by his Father. He didn't have any sin to forgive like Isaiah. And so his Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the Holy Seed of God. He's the only offspring of the Father. He is the ultimate and only truly faithful remnant of Israel. And, And just as Isaiah was given a message, Jesus is given a message. He comes as the ultimate messenger, the ultimate prophet sent by God. And just as Isaiah's message was a tough message that involved a lot of judgment, the same is true with Jesus. He gets a similar one. Because Israel is still longing for kind of greatness and power. Now they have this specific hope of a coming Messiah, but their view of the Messiah was that he was going to be a political revolutionary who would overthrow Rome and restore Israel to power and glory, to make Israel great again, right? Instead, Jesus preached a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one, not a political one, not a kingdom of power. And and he preached a kingdom that was for all people. He associated with the outcasts of Jewish life, tax collectors, prostitutes. He had a conversation with a Samaritan, which was an offshoot that had broken off from Israel. And they were like, according to Jewish law, you were ceremonially unclean if you had any contact with a Samaritan. And Jesus just just cares for this woman. He isn't concerned. Because of these constant violations of religious rule upon rule, because he wouldn't be the the political revolutionary that they wanted from some of his first sermons. The Jewish leadership starts plotting his murder. And he often preached for all these reasons in parables. And when he's asked why he preaches in parables, he says in Matthew 13, he says a version of this in all four of the Gospels. He says, I speak to them in parables because, and he quotes Isaiah, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will hear but not understand, you will see but never perceive. And he goes on to quote Isaiah 6, verse 9 and verse 10. Jesus continues to preach the kingdom of God by God's grace and is rejected by many, by most, but a few with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to him do receive him and do follow him and are changed by him. But Jesus isn't just a better messenger than Isaiah. He's, in Isaiah's words, he becomes the the, the suffering servant. He didn't just preach grace, he became the means of God's grace. Like Isaiah, when we stand before God in his holiness and glory, we are also condemned. We are people of uncleanness, surrounded by people of uncleanness. 
And just as the coal that cleansed Isaiah's mouth was taken from the altar of sacrifice, Jesus becomes, Jesus himself becomes the final and the greatest sacrifice to God. He offers himself, in the words of Hebrews, once for all. One sacrifice to trump all sacrifices, the last sacrifice that was necessary. Isaiah speaks of this prophetically. Isaiah is is called by theologians the fifth gospel because it says so much about Jesus. It doesn't give them the hope that they wanted for, for national power and national restoration and national deliverance in their day, but it points to this future a king that will come, this this future different kingdom that will come through Jesus. And Isaiah 53, who you'll get to later on uh, in in this series, uh, is one of the the most explicit passages when it talks about Jesus in these ways that you probably heard. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, through his death on our behalf and his victorious resurrection, he atones for our sin. Because of Jesus, we can hear the same words that Isaiah himself heard from the seraphim. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So in light of all this, It's a lot to take in. It's a lot of history, crazy vision, a lot of implications. How are we supposed to respond in the midst of this? Well, I think you can kind of see a little bit of where I'm going. History just seems to repeat itself over and over. Isaiah 6 is actually quoted one more time in the Bible, uh, and uh, it's by the Apostle Paul. After Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, he ascends back to God, the Heavenly Father, but then he appears to this guy, Paul. and His name was Saul then, and his name gets changed to Paul, and he becomes an incredible missionary who spreads the good news of Jesus all over the ancient world. And just like Jesus, just like Isaiah, he was opposed by the powers that be in that time. Not, not powers of the world around him, that's expected, but opposed by the people who claim to be speaking on God's behalf. Eventually, he's imprisoned in Rome, and in the very end of the book of Acts that tells a lot of his story, at the very end of that book, in the the final verses of Acts 28, he's standing before Jewish leaders in Rome and asked to give an account, and he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. And that's how the book of Acts ends, essentially, with a couple more verses that frame after that. And the cycle just keeps repeating over and over again. From Israel's initial desire to form a kingdom in rebellion against God, through all kinds of kings, mostly bad, a few okay, to judgment, to exile, to destruction and invasion, to rebuilding, on and on and on. God reveals himself to his people. But over and over again, they turn from him. So Isaiah 6, it's, it's kind of a summary of the whole book of Isaiah. And it's kind of a summary of the whole history of Israel. And it's kind of a summary of the whole history of all people who belong to God over time. God reveals himself in grace and love, but over and over again, his people seem to turn from him. And one of the most common ways that they turn from him 
is to pursue national identity and power. Not satisfied to just be God's people. They, they want to be God's people in power over others. But God keeps reaching out and revealing himself. Those, to, to, to those who would simply acknowledge their need and receive his grace and forgiveness and cleansing. And those who are willing to do that, just like Isaiah, he can use them to spread his word. But those who do not, they're, they're cut off from him. No matter how much they invoke God's name, no matter how much in our day they speak in the name of Jesus. Jesus said lots of people would speak in his name. And at the end of things, he would say, I never knew you. It's very sobering. So how are we to respond? First and foremost, I believe we must beware of hardness of heart, just like Isaiah. It's so easy to slip into a sense of entitlement before God, believing that we are the good guys of God, either through our performance, through what we do for God. Some, some, some would say uh, we're made right by God by, by what we do for him. That's one way we can get a sense of entitlement. Some would say uh, we're made right with God because of, of our ethnicity or our national identity. Those who see uh, um, uh, a, lot, a lot of folks tend to see Israel, uh, sorry, have seen America from the founding of America as a new version of Israel. And so to be a part of America is to be the good guys. And the problem is always, all, all these forms of entitlement put the enemy and the problem with everything in the world out there instead of in here, right? May we always have a soft heart like Isaiah, undone and humbled by God's holiness and his glory, amazed that he could ever reveal himself to us. Amazed at the undeserved grace that we receive from Jesus and eager to share it with others. The def a definitive mark, not the only, but one of the definitive marks of God's people is the sense of humility. Acknowledging that we don't deserve God's love and grace, but he gives it to us anyway. And a sure mark of someone that has turned from God is an entitlement. It's like, no, I'm the good guy. It's you guys that are the problem. It always means somewhere that a root of pride has crept into that heart and is bearing and has grown into producing fruit that is not good fruit. It's not healthy fruit. It's distorted and misdirected. So beware of hardness of heart that can creep in. Uh, I think there's also a way that we can respond um, and we need to consider the nature of God's calling. Because a popular way to, to teach this passage is, uh, and how I've heard it a lot, is, is you, you preach the passage, but you kind of end it after those first five or six verses. You end it with, here I am, send me. Just the, the, the happy fun part. The glorious vision and the really cool sounding commission, Right? And according to this way of preaching this passage, every, the, the, the big punchline is everyone has a super specific calling from God, just like Isaiah. So you got to press in and find out what's your special calling, right? But when you read the whole passage, it kind of puts it in a different light. And who of us really wants Isaiah's calling, right? If we're honest. And this passage was never understood that way to the people that first heard it. It's never referenced that way elsewhere in Scripture. It's never been taught that way in church history. 
until our super-duper individualistic modern Western kind of perspective. And, and, and just know that the Bible doesn't connect the idea of God's calling with vocation. It just doesn't really ever connect those dots. You don't have a calling to your job. I'm not, when I was an elder, I wasn't called to be an elder. In fact, the, the, the very, the very uh, uh, contrary is what the Scripture teaches. It says, if anyone desires the office of elder, he desires a good thing. It's not an irrevocable calling from God. It's something you desire and you kind of test and you discern. If God shows up to you in person and says, this is what I'm calling you to do, by all means, go with that. Please obey, right? Don't, don't turn away from that. But if he doesn't, we're in a bit of a different place. And so we do need to be responsive to God's leading. God does speak to us, but often in a more subtle way than Isaiah. Through his people in community, through his word, and through prayer. And as he does, we should definitely have the heart of Isaiah and respond to God saying, you know, here I am, send me as the faithful presence of Jesus to bring his presence, his love, and his grace to everyone in our sphere of influence, being a blessing to everyone, pointing to Jesus where we can, whether that's with our kids and parenting, whether that's at the office coding, whether that's making coffee, sharing your faith, meeting the needs of others, all the things that you do because of Jesus can become worship in that way. And those all are fulfilling this, this embodied presence of Jesus that I, he sends all of his people to be. But remember in the midst of that, Isaiah saw very little change from his message. Throughout his life, he was mostly opposed. Eventually, he was executed by his own people, just like Jesus. He didn't fully understand the messages that he gave. He didn't understand that the holy seed that the stump is, is Jesus. He didn't get it. He didn't live to see the promises he gave to Israel fulfilled. And yet thousands of years later, we're studying his words on a different continent that they couldn't have even imagined as they point to Jesus. You never know how God will use you. So be faithful in what he has put right in front of you. Resist the, these ideas of, of pride and grandeur and greatness that, that, that you're just holding out for this epic calling that will change the world. Like Occasionally something like that happens with folk, but generally it's a lot more subtle than that. It's a lot more ordinary than that. It's a lot more just in the stuff of life than that. And those who do end up doing big, more public things over and over again, it seems like God uses them only because of how they've been faithful in general stuff first, with your kids, with your money, with your work, with your friends, with your church family, with your family family, you know, like the, the, the things that you would all rather skip over to do something epic, right? All the things that are like, how am I going to make the, the money work? What am I going to do with these kids? What am I going to do with these in-laws? You know, that's the stuff. That's the here I am, send me. That's what God has put for you right now to wrestle with and, and figure out what it looks like to be the love of Jesus and those he's already put in your life. And you never know what God will do through that. 
You may or may not ever see the fruit of it. But that's not what we work for. We work towards that glorious day when we will see him face to face. Even better than what Isaiah saw. With nothing separating us. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for his words. We thank you for how they point us to Jesus. We thank you for the grace that only comes from him. And our prayer is that you would humble us today. Father, humble us. Root out the entitlement that so easily creeps into our heart and grows. The entitlement that says, I was made for something bigger and better than these people you put in front of me. (laughs) And we all feel it. I feel it. We all feel it. Father, make us a blessing to those around us. Humble us so that you can use us, so that more might experience your grace, so that more might experience freedom from guilt and the weight of sin through Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask all this. Amen.